0: Good afternoon, evening to you all. I'm really excited to join together as we dive in again to the book of 1 John. And would you pray with me as we get started? <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much for our community, for this church. Um, thank you for bringing us closer together and also drawing us closer to you as we spend time looking at this um, beautiful Letter, epistle, book, statements that are all kind of um, brought together in 1 John. We ask that you would open our hearts to what it is you would say to us and how it is you would move us um, in this world, that more of your kingdom on earth um, will be brought down. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going into uh, 1 John and chapter 1, verse 8 to chapter 2, verse 2. Um, As we dive into this, for those of you who were here last week with Pastor Kevin's preach, uh, Pastor Kevin gave us some really interesting turns of the gem. I don't know if if you're familiar with that phrasing, but there's a rabbinic phrase that says that uh, text and scripture is like a gem, and it's like you, you get to turn it, turn it, turn it, for everything isn't is in it, uh, Tana Ben Bagbag says. Or uh, Rabbi Akiva says that there's 70 faces, facets to every text. So Tana Ben Bagbag, turn it, turn it, and Rabbi Akiva, 70 faces to every text. That means that if uh, we have found an interpretation, there's, you know, 68 more to find. And we can continue to turn it, turn it, turn it again until we find something more. So as I preach um, today, I just wanted to let you know I'm really... We had good question response with Pastor Kevin last week, and we had good, um, healthy pastoral dialogue when we got home. Um, And I just want to let you know that when I told him what I think this passage is saying, what we're going to preach, he was like, yes, I think so too. So we're not in argument with one another. We're in fierce agreement and disagreement. Does that sound good? (laughs) Mostly agreement. Um, We just like to turn the gem and see another face. So let's start with our reading in 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a crazy passage. Now, when I think of the God, this letter, we, it's not really a letter. We don't really know what to call it, but we refer to it as an epistle or in a letter, but, but it's something more than that. When I think of 1 John, I like to think about all these passages about life and light and love, and there's um, Sunday school songs that I have stuck in my head for First John verses. Anybody else? Um, there's, I mean, I have songs. for Songwriters love this letter because of all these beautiful verses. But I don't think we've stopped to really consider that within just a few verses of our text, in eight verses, and Kevin very rightly pointed out the fierce distinction being brought by John between light and darkness. Like we sing the song about being the light, but we don't always talk about what it means for those of us who might be in darkness. John jumps right in and starts talking about these big, heavy words like sin and atoning sacrifice. Words that, at least in my Christian circles, many people don't, they try to avoid at all costs, right? I don't know a lot of Christians today in my community here that are running around going, well, let's talk about hell, sin, and atoning sacrifice. Um, Let's talk about the blood of Jesus. Like people don't jump right to that imagery. People like to start with Jesus um, taught us how to live. Jesus taught us how to love. Jesus taught us um, how to fight for justice. We don't go right to, let's talk about sin and an atoning sacrifice. But John does, or the author of first John does, whoever that may be. He goes right to, I'm going to write this to you so that you don't sin. But if you do, guess what? We have a defender, And he is the righteous one, a tzaddik in rabbinic Hebrew. Like, I can't hear righteous one without thinking of somebody that's so righteous that people want to live like that individual. And that Jesus is our defender, this court language used right away. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word for atonement, John's going to use one other time again and then in 1 John, and he'll say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. From the very beginning of time all the way back into Genesis and in the beginning of our Christian narrative in our New Testament, we have been trying to sort out what to do with the problem of evil in this world and what to do with the problem of evil within our very selves. In fact, there is an entire show right now on NBC called The Good Place, which I've um, only recently started watching because Rabbi Ari convinced me, as well as many of you, and it is fascinating, right? And for those of you who don't know, here's the premise of the show.
1: (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate Every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic, and they think to themselves, ah, who cares, no one's watching? We were watching. Surprise! (laughs) Anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, We calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it.
0: Okay, so this show um, has pushes out the question that all of humanity has been wrestling with since the beginning of time. Even if you go to Egypt and you look in the tombs and you see the hieroglyphs, there are literal hearts, organ hearts being weighed on a measuring scale next to a feather to try to see if your heart was lighter than a feather and then you would be able to get this judgment day and then you could be able to have something good happen for you in the afterlife or not. This is a very ancient concept. Now, this particular show tries to answer the question of what is good um, by delving into the minds of a whole bunch of different moral philosophers, and I did have Western philosophy as part of my Fuller Seminary Masters of Divinity Education, and I want to let you know that I was incredibly bored. And I did not pay as much attention as I should have. In fact, we even had this game running because the class was very long, you guys. It was like you had to sit in class from 8 to 3. I mean, can you imagine? For a whole week. And um, we had this game because most of us were youth pastors. So the game was to try to get the professor to say a word, a random word, and you would get points. We were already working the point scale in the seminary class. If you could get the professor to say this word, and one day the word was rubber ducky. I mean, how are you going to get your professor? And we would find out the word, like somebody, one of the youth pastors would figure out a word and, and pass it along to us. Now, i in my husband's defense, he never played this ridiculous game. I liked to play the game. But I'm also a really good kid and a good student, and I want the points. So I could only play the game if I was first out of the gate. Because if he could suspect later on that I was being mean to the professor, I'd feel really, really bad about that. So basically, I wanted to get away with my sin. And um, I totally right out of the gate. I was like, rubber ducky's way too obvious. Nobody's going to get this. I have to be the first one. So I posed a philosophical question for the professor to ask. I said, suppose you, I don't know, you have a rubber ducky, right? now?" And I, So I posed this question to the professor. At the moment I said the words rubber ducky, my colleagues who are supposed to be cool went, oh, because I got the point for the day, right? And um, they blew my cover entirely. Like there was actual bowing down that I had said the word rubber ducky. And then one of the students actually got, the professor to sing the rubber ducky song from Sesame. It was an amazing day. Um, For our longer classes, we actually had bingo, where you had to get like five in a row and get extra points. So that's how I spent my time in the moral philosophy class. And as I've watched The Good Place, I've realized I I missed some things. I probably should go back to my notes. You know, the Bible, interestingly enough, of course, does not feature any of these individuals. And really, it reminds me of this quote. Have you ever heard of Plato? Aristotle, Socrates, yes, morons. Morons, right? I mean, that this wonderful quote from Princess Bride, have you heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Morons, right? These are not, the Bible has been dealing with these questions that those Western and ancient philosophers and Greek philosophers were dealing with that we read as though they're the first persons on the block to ever think of a brand new theory. And I've even heard this discussed within some of Um, the portions of the good place. Like Kant's the first person to think of this theory. I'm like, no, he's not. That's in Leviticus chapter 19. Okay. So in any event, I want to suggest that the Bible actually is wrestling with all of these things and that the people of biblical period are wrestling with these questions as well. How do we get into the good place? How do we avoid the bad place? What are the rules for all of that? What What can we do to earn our way? Can you earn your way? What is the answer? Well, the Bible very early on, um, we have these pictures of like a judgment day and standing before God and coming in. And I think as we talk about what atonement is, um, it is all part of this conversation of how do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with the fact that we all mess up all the time and we're deeply aware of the fact that we are constantly missing the mark. Um, I grew up in a liturgical church. I grew up in a Lutheran church and it was a wonderful experience. And every single week we had a confession of sin. And what that liturgy sounded like was exactly quoted from first John. Nobody ever told me that, by the way, I never knew I was quoting scripture. I just said the words because we were supposed to say the words, but it started with, if we confess that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it would continue on. It says, I confess to you that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I've not loved you with my whole heart. And we'd have this big confession. Now, as a kid, anybody remember as a kid messing up? I messed up all the time, weekly even. I'd say daily. And every week, probably moment by moment, I would think to myself, okay, Danielle, you just confessed your sin clean slate. We would have this next responsive uh, liturgy. It would say, and you have been the priest, the pastor would stand up there. You've been forgiven of sin. God has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. I'm like, whew, because I yelled at my mom. I yelled at my sister. I did that thing. I watched a TV show I wasn't supposed to watch. I unpeeled all the Rubik's Cube stickers and stuck them back on to tell people that I was brilliant. So, like, all of these things—not a personal story, just an Um, example—all of these things that I had done in that week and realized then that I needed to do something with that, the Bible recognizes that reality of our human experience— as does the good place show, and starts to solve that problem. Now, when John uses this word for atonement um, in the Greek, and then in the Hebrew it has these echoes, there's a lot of different pictures and images for it. And as we try to unpack that word, what does it mean that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins? What does that work for? I just want to remind you that we actually have in our biblical calendar an entire day of atonement. That is one of the days In the biblical calendar, it happens every fall. It's also called Yom Kippur. And Kippur, that kind of concept, that day of atonement where all the sins are are made um, clean again, washed away, but also Kippur covered over. Uh, Rabbi Ari uses the image of that we all have these potholes, like there's this massive stuff in our life, a very rough road ahead. Some of us for like 20 kilometers, potholes just for 20 kilometers. There's no break. But that Kippur is a covering over. So we have a concept in the word of atonement of, of a fixing, a covering over of our sin. And that is expressed immediately in that day of atonement found back in Leviticus. Now, in our Hebrew scriptures, we also have a picture of the mercy of God. That the reason why that day of atonement works is not because a goat literally took away our sin, but because God's mercy has looked upon us and solved our sin problem for us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness in that process. And we have these beautiful passages in our Hebrew texts as well. Uh, When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions, Psalm 65. You covered over them. You made atonement for our transgressions. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations chapter 3. The Bible's concept that though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, Isaiah 118. The concept of God's mercy and willingness to forgive us and make us new, this is something that is very much woven throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures. God is aware that since that sneaky snake, things haven't been right. And we're trying to find a way back in. So when we talk about atonement, we can talk about that covering over, but we can also talk about the idea that here in first John too, again, that atonement is the sacrifice for our sins. So What do we do with that? Not only for the sins, but the whole world, how does this sacrifice work? Well, Christians like to debate. We actually have our own like Christian philosophers and we have all these different varieties of atonement and theories for it. We have the Christus Victor atonement theory of penal substitution. We have the idea that, that Christ has ransomed us, um, that we were captive to sin and death and Christ has brought us through. And all of those things, people like to set up camps and pick one theory that they're going to hang out with for a long time. In fact, much of our theology of how we even talk about why we're Christians surrounds questions like this: going to hell? Ask Jesus into your heart to be saved. Contact a Christian-based church. I don't know, just pick one up, pick it up the yellow pages, and go. Right? And that is, if you're concerned about hell, if you're concerned about your sin, just go to church. Just let's just handle your sin problem. And that's that penal substitutionary atonement theory. And when we talk about this, there's good verses in the Bible and reasons why we talk about it very simply, right? The four spiritual laws, the gospel hand, all of those things. And when we do, we, we hang on verses like Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we'll say something very simply like God loves you. Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Seen. Right? That's good. And that's not bad. It's better than not believing anything, but it lacks narrative and context and richness that I think God is making available to us. It's like when we go into an airplane and we never ask the question how the airplane flies. Now, for many of us, it's fine. We're just like, I'm trusting it'll fly. I've seen them in the air before. We're going to go. But some of us, many sparkers, want to know how the plane flies. So let's dive into this atonement theory and try to figure out how is this plane flying? What is it that John or the writer of First John means when first John says what First John says in just a few verses, that should rattle and shake the whole world? Well, first we have to go straight to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right? We can't hang out with this atonement theory and just grab one verse here or there from Matthew, one verse from Mark, or one verse from Romans, or one verse from Colossians, and just hang out in that place only and say, now I understand atonement. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the entire New Testament, they're going to start grabbing hold of a whole bunch of symbolism, a whole bunch of different theories. All of those, is it penal substitution? Is it Christus Victor? Is it ransoming? They're like, Yes. Don't, don't set up your camps over this anymore, Christians. The answer is yes. So let's continue to push through Then a little bit. We have this Christ vicarious substitutionary death, right? We talk about this as the penal satisfaction or substitution theory, that Christ, by offering himself as a sacrifice, by substituting himself for us and actually bearing the punishment, which have been ours, satisfied the Father and then effected a reconciliation between God and us. That Christ is indeed a sacrifice for all. And we have that language in the Gospels, and we have that language in the rest of the New Testament. And we also have language about how Christ is our advocate. That we need to have somebody that's gonna stand before us, that will defend us, that will be that righteous one. That language is also present. And we have that beautiful verse in Colossians, like he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And I'm sure that if anyone here ever had like a campus crusade day or an IV day or whatever day, I know it's crew now, uh, but any of those days growing up, like I had all of those, like there was a courtroom scene and here I am having to come before the almighty judge. And just like at the beginning, my points are being tallied and minus 53 points. If you ever told a woman to smile, she'd look pretty if she smiled minus 53 points is my favorite one. Um, or if you use Facebook as a verb, that was hilarious. So yeah. So you have all of those points there and then the judge is there and the judge is looking and taking note of that. And then Jesus comes in and says, I paid it all. Right. And we have that picture also in our text. We also have the picture of Christ as ransoming us, as paying that price, as setting us free, that this is the new exodus where we've been set free from the prison of sin. Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death that it was our fear of death that was holding us into that place of sin that we would hoard goods or hoard our our food or all of our things and harm others because we're afraid of dying. And so if we can just release that fear of death that we know ultimately Christ has brought us into that victory, we don't have to worry about that anymore and we're being set free. All of that is there. And indeed, most insanely incredibly, Jesus does this thing where he launches his own ministry right into Israel's story and starts walking around as Israel has rejected God as their king way back in 1 Samuel, how they had godly and very ungodly kings, humans standing in, in that place. And then those kings did terrible things and the prophets had to rail against them because they did not do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. They oppressed the poor. They oppressed the foreigner and the orphan and the widow. That we then started to cry out, we need a king. And unbelievably, Jesus starts to walk around the Galilee in the midst of the Roman Empire oppression and starts to say things like, it's time for God to be king. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. God is ruling and reigning. And that becomes an earth-shaking, crazy thing. And this is where we get our Christus-Victor theory. That because of Christ's death on the cross, it is in that moment that Christ becomes king. That that is the enthronement of God. And in that moment, God's rule and God's reign is set to right. And we want to say, how is that possible that a Roman Empire oppressing hundreds of thousands of Jews, right who have been crucifying Jews so many they run out of wood and have to start nailing them to the walls of the city. that how is it that one more Jewish Messiah, rabbi figure goes and gets nailed to a cross, and somehow that is the enthronement of God and the defeat of all evil? But the people who wrote the New Testament believed that to be true. And he started walking around believing that Christ was the victor specifically because of what had happened on the cross. The atonement for our sins. And this is all what John or the writer, First John, whoever that may be, is pulling in to this conversation. When, When just that simple passage, the atonement for your sins and not just yours, but the whole world. Those little quick little lines. This author is drawing all of that imagery in. Now, we have a very hard time understanding this, and and I have a very small human example. Tomorrow, we will remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When we remember him, we frequently remember these beautiful moments, right? Where it's the I have a dream speech, and everybody loves him, and it's incredible. And, And yet we forget that the reality is that he was a very disliked, hated figure by most of the nation, that he had had several assassination attempts um, against his life, uh, against the people that he loved and cared about, that there had been bomb threats the week that he was killed, that he had been stabbed at one point, um, that if he had just sneezed, he would have lost his life. This was not a well-loved, beloved man in our nation at that time. President Lyndon B. Johnson worked with Dr. King on several occasions to try to pass different legislations, including the Civil Rights Act, and wanted to then pass the Fair Housing Act, and signed these things, and yet still could not get Congress to pass the Fair Housing Act at all. And it had been lying there in wait, just never moving, because we sin. And it was not until he was assassinated and killed that the conscience of a nation started to awaken. Only when his life was taken did the power of that empire of racism and brutality start to fall. Only when the nation watched for miles and miles the procession was finally, a few days later, Lyndon B. Johnson able, because of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., able to get Congress to pass the Fair Housing Act. In a very, very, very small way, right? Not in the entire universe way, but Martin Luther King Jr. laid down his life for all of us that we might start to see some tiny bit of justice and equality. And it was not until he was cut down in the middle of his life that we started to see people move and change. It's that type of imagery that the gospel writers in the New Testament are bringing into this Christus Victor picture. That when Mark says, like, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, this is the image that we have of Christus Victor. That it was in the laying down of his life that Jesus saves us. That that the power of empire and sin and death start to fall. It was in Christ's death that the ruler of this age is now cast out. Sin and death and empire have lost their power. And the resurrection is the manifestation of the truth that Jesus is now victorious. Now, when we know all of that, how the airplane flies, now we can say he died for our sins. But let's not make it egotistical and narcissistic that this is all about where you and I get to go, the good place, hopefully, right? Let's all cross our fingers. just joking. Um, it's not about our golden ticket to a heavenly amusement park in the sky. It is about seeing the power of evil defeated. Now that wonderful verse where we talk about how our personal sins are being taken away in the nailing of a cross in Colossians 2. Keep reading people. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here's the next part that we always forget. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is this radical, let's argue, insane belief that the first followers of Jesus and then for centuries and now two millennia after continue to argue that in Christ's death on the cross, we start to see the powers of evil defeated. This is the Christus Victor theory. Now, when we then go into first John, we don't just see only these pretty pictures of light and love and life, but we see the pure cost of giving us those pictures. We see the actual cost that it takes in order for us to move into a place of hope and justice and light and love. We need to have our sin atoned for, forgiven, cast out, not just mine, but the whole world, that then we can move into this hope. Again, First John, my dear children, I write this to you So that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is good news. We're forgiven. That little kid with the Rubik's Cube stickers and the lies that were catching up to her very quickly. She needed to be able to go to church every Sunday and hear that the sins were forgiven. But now this big kid standing in front of you who opens up the newspaper and thinks, oh, dear God, I need to know that the battle's been won, that the forces of evil have been defeated, that that final word has been had, and that it's not about getting my ticket in You see, it's not a point system at all, is it? It's a beautiful invitation to a whole new reality and truth. And the early followers of Jesus expressed this in very tangible ways through what we call in the church sacraments. Special, beautiful, meaningful symbols that are visible symbols of an invisible reality. And two of the primary sacraments that we all participate in are baptism and communion. Now, when we participate in baptism, the Bible itself, Romans chapter 6, explains it this way. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. You see that whole baptism thing we do, that is all about this atonement. That's all about the new life that we are invited to live. The way that we can go down to the river and watch the water run down and wash away our sin. The water's not special. It doesn't clean us. It doesn't wash away the sins, but it's a picture. God knows we need those visible experiential realities to teach us what God is trying to show us, right? He can't just tell us, he has to show us. Come down to the water. Come. Know once again that you have been forgiven that Christ is here, that Christ is present, and that every day is a new chance to live a new life. And that does not mean that we just sin and sin again and sin again because the grace is abundant and we don't have to worry about a point system. And who knows if there really is a good place and bad place. It's none of that, right? It's that you are invited right now in this very moment to know that you can start again. I can start again. We have a new life. This is the good news that's preached in 1 John. And the next sacrament that we often participate in that we'll do in just a moment that the church holds is communion. That last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, that Passover meal, remembering the freedom found in the Exodus as they ran from that oppressor Egypt and found new life as the people of God. That when we come and we have this meal, when we take the cup, when we break the bread, that we again are proclaiming his death and resurrection. That once again, we are invited not just into a beautiful symbol amongst us, but we are invited to participate in the truth of what it means to experience the atonement for our sins. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We want to invite us now, all of us in this room, forgiven, loved, sought after, known to come and join at the table, the table that's been going on for millennia, the table that sits here before us. And we'll be taking communion whenever you're ready. You are welcome, um, as Pastor Kevin leads us in a worship song, to go partake. And we'll be taking it by the means of intinction, which is a fancy word that means dip the bread, the gluten-free bread into the cup. And you can take it there at the table. You can come back and take it when you're ready. This is the body of Christ given for us. This is the blood of Christ shed for us. This is the forgiveness of sins. This is the atonement we've been looking for. Come to the table.
1: Friends, may you receive and feel and know that as Christ suffered and died, all the sin, all the shame, all the blame, all the guilt has been sent away. And may you leave this place and enter into this week living out of that freedom and forgiveness. In Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week for the continuation of 1 John. Have a wonderful week.